0: It's always good to get together with God's people in worship, but for me it is maybe especially good this morning just because I've been soaking in Psalm 42 and in the experience of a man um who is not experiencing God, who was away from his people, away from the place he was used to worshiping, and it hurt. And I can only say it feels so good Do you remember that first day after we started meeting after COVID? It was so good. That's how this man feels. I'll be diving into that shortly. We'll be in Psalm 42 and 43. Um, It wasn't until I was preparing this message that it struck me. We know the Psalms are the the hymn book, if you will, for Israel. They're, They're songs. Where's the music? All we got was lyrics. So what do we do? We take lyrics that are 3,000 years old or more, and we have talented people that put music to them so that we can sing them, and that's good. Most of the times, they do a great job. Um, Some of the times, um, as the old car ad said, the rental car, uh, um, not exactly. Um, I don't know about you, I grew up with a, a musical version of Psalm 42 that was wonderful and terrible all at the same time. It was wonderful because it was beautiful music, very soothing, easy to sing. You know how you get that song in your head and you can't get it out? That was the song. So it was wonderful. And if the panting deer, because Psalm 42 begins, as the deer uh, longs for the flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, begins that way. If the panting deer were Bambi, And he was thirsty because he was tuckered out after a long play date with Thumper. It would be wonderful music. It would fit a Disney um, animated film. Um, But that's not what Psalm 42 is. Psalm 42 is a lament. The man hurts, he's sad, he senses loss. If Johnny Cash were alive, I think maybe I'd give him the task of putting this to music. Um, I say that only because he took an incredibly sad song that was written by a man struggling with addiction, put his own music, his own spin to it, and it's called Hurt. And it is genius if you're wanting to know what a lament should sound like. What a song that's sung with pain and regret and longing should sound like. He got it right. If you've not heard the song, I commend it to you. Psalm 42 was written by a soul that's hurting. He's longing for better days. He's being tormented by other people that mock him. Uh, He has no sense of God's presence. He has no hope at the time of it returning. It expresses great hurt but it also, as it goes on, begins to express hope as well. This is a song of a man who's not giving up. It's a song of a man who's fighting. It's a song of a man who will not let go. And in his fight, there's instruction and there's hope, I think, for us all. Let's pray as we begin. Father God, I know that there are people either in this room or watching online, or more likely both, who will identify immediately with the emotions of this man, with the loss, with the tears, with the loneliness, with the pain. There are others who, that's a memory, but they'll identify with it as well, and they'll hope it doesn't come upon them again. And there are those who this will come upon, maybe life has gone well so far, but it will not always go well you will test us you will challenge us you will make us realize who and what it is that we're actually holding on to in the dark so lord i pray that this psalm has an impact on all of us regardless of whether our our loneliness and our suffering is past or present or future we need what this man has we need his strategy we need his conviction we need his faith And so I pray all that will become clear as we study his words. In Jesus' name, amen. The superscription tells us that this was written for the choir master by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, we know, are essentially the singers. They're the ones who would lead Israel in song. Um, They wrote at least 11 psalms that we know of. Um, And I'm, I'm putting the two together, 42 and 43, because that's what some of the oldest Hebrew manuscripts do. They consider that as a single psalm. And I think by the time we're done, you probably agree that that's the right way to do it. And when you do that, what you end up with is with three more or less equal length stanzas, all ending in the same chorus. Here's the chorus they end with. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Those are the exact words. They're found in uh, Psalm 42.5, Psalm 42.11, which is the last psalm. That, that psalm is split into two choruses. And then Psalm 43 is only five verses, and it's verse 5 of Psalm 43. So you've got three verses or choruses, if you will, all ending in exactly the same way. Now, I know it's a well-known song. It's well-loved by many of you. It's preached often. Um, if you've ever been depressed, and I think most of us can say we have, um, and especially if you've been depressed for some time where it just doesn't seem to get better quickly, this psalm is for you. It speaks to us because not only do we all identify with it, um, we've, we've just we've felt the weight. Some of you have felt it moderately and for a short time. Some of you have felt it oppressively for a long time. And, and both of us, or both groups, should find help in this psalm. The man dealt with it honestly, he dealt with it well, and he dealt with it for a long time. The psalm ends with him doing better. But he's not out of the woods. It's so realistic. You you don't finish these two psalms and say everything's better. You finish these two psalms and say, it's a little better. And I have some hope. And that's a good thing. So Psalm 42. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You can go without food for a long time. You don't make it long without water. That would have been well known to the psalmist 3,000 years ago, dwelling in the Middle East. You read Genesis, for example, people are fighting over who gets access to the water. He chose maybe the most relatable but dire circumstances that we can all imagine. You don't get any water. And he says that's what it feels like right now, to be separated from God, to be separated from his people, to not be able to go to the temple or the the tabernacle. We don't know who wrote this psalm beyond that general title, sons of course, so we don't know when it was written. We don't know if they're still worshiping in the tabernacle or if they have built the temple as in Solomon's day. But whichever it is, he's separated from it, and he misses it. His, he's, he's miserable, and his situation is confirmed to us by that next verse, verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He'd been depressed for a while, and his fears it's going to last for even longer. He's being taunted, and he says, all the day long. There's no let-up. He weeps, not just Tuesday or Thursday, but day and night. He's been in the valley for a long time, and as near as I can tell, he expects to remain there for as far out as he can see. But let me tell you right now, when you're depressed, you don't see very far. You see about this far. The pain of that time in the valley was compounded by memories of better days, he says in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Sometimes we think that happy memories comfort us, and if you're in a good place, maybe they do. But if you're depressed, happy memories haunt you. That's what life used to be like. And it's never going to be that way again. That's the voice of depression that plays in your head. Not only is he in a painful place emotionally, it appears that he's alone. There's only two voices in the psalm. His and the people who mock him and say, where is your God? Wherever he is, and we know he's actually, we're going to see this in a moment, he's actually in the very northern end of Israel is about as far away as you can be from Jerusalem and still be in country. We don't know what he's doing up there. We don't know why he's there. Is he on his way out to exile? Did he have to flee Jerusalem because of persecution? We're not told, we just know he's not where he wants to be and he doesn't think he's gonna be able to get back anytime soon. So his soul is dry, it's parched, it's panting for God. His enemies are taunting him. He cries day and night. He's cut off from the temple. He's cut off from his friends. How should he respond to this? How would you respond to this? How do you fight back against a world that mocks your faith in God, who's your one comfort that even now seems to be gone? Well, here's what the psalmist does. Preaches to himself. He doesn't simply listen to the voices in his head that say perhaps true, but very one-sided things. I mean, we've all had that experience, right? The tape starts to play in your head of all the things that are wrong with your life, whether they're your fault or not. It just plays, that's his life. Can't pay the bills, lost my job, the car broke again, the kids are in rebellion, my relationships are broken, God seems a million miles away, and the tape just plays. Well, the psalmist knows that the voice is in his head, what he calls his soul here, which I just would kind of suggest is a combination of your thoughts and your emotions and your heart here. Your soul is not always as reliable as it might seem. Depression loves to exaggerate. Depression loves to exaggerate. To exaggerate. It's never going to get better. And not only that, it's worse than you think it is. It loves to exaggerate. So he challenges those thoughts. He challenges his own soul and he says, I'm going to speak other truths to myself. I'm going to speak truths to myself that reveal and that tell me that these present discouraging circumstances. Are not going to have the last word. So he says in verse five. Verse, he starts with the question, "Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me?" Now we can answer that question, and he can answer that question. Life is hard for him right now. He, he's told us about it. He's been very transparent. He's being mocked. He's away from his support system. People are laughing at him. Where is your God? He's weeping? If you and I were to ask somebody that question, knowing what we know about him, we would be tone deaf. We would be insulting. What do you mean, why are you downcast? I I get why you're downcast. I would be as well. Yet this is what he asks himself. Because he knows his soul is painting a more hopeless picture than is warranted by reality. So he continues, and he says, hope in God. Why? Why can he hope in God? For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In other words, the drought's not going to last forever. And and even in the midst of feeling like it's going to last forever, he says it's not going to. God will not let it last forever. Forever. he will again someday praise God the depression will lift the circumstances may change we'll see that in a moment that they don't have to but how can he know this how can he know that he will again praise God well I think he knows it because he knows his Bible he's probably sung about half of it because that was his job to take the word of God and put it to music and then lead people in those songs. Perhaps we don't know whether he came before or after David, so we don't know whether Psalm 23 was around, but if not, there's others like it. But maybe he's saying this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There's some dark valleys out there. There's some dangerous valleys out there, not just to your body, but to your soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When you're in the valley, you may not feel like he's with you. But he had sung probably again and again, no, he is with me. He will not abandon me. Maybe he sang Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So the psalmist Determines not merely to listen to whatever just naturally is coming into his head due to these hard circumstances, um, whatever thoughts, whatever experiences, whatever the devil threw at him. He says, I'm not merely going to listen to those. He goes, I'm going to speak to myself. I'm going to put some new facts on the table here. Some of you know um, the name Martin Lloyd Jones, he was a Welsh physician. Uh, He gave up his medical practice and um, took the pulpit, I think, in London for 29 years. Phenomenal preacher. Um, He's kind of recognized as the gold standard for Psalm 42. He preached a series on that. And then he turned it into a book titled uh, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. And here's what he said. The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you <clears throat> the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, right? Isn't that exactly what happens? You wake up in the morning, and all the problems from yesterday are the first things on your mind. You continue. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man speaking of the psalmist, this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And he says, Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have but little experience. He's a bit blunt at the end there, but I think he's right. If you're not practiced in preaching truth to yourself you're missing out on one of the most basic and useful tools in battling spiritual depression. Because the natural thoughts that come into your mind are not going to be a text. They're not going to be a promise. They're not going to be a worship song. That's not what's going to naturally be there. What's naturally going to be there is the checkbook and the job and the family and the problems and the broken relationships and all the things that bring you into that valley and put you in the pit. So the psalmist fights back against those voices, the voices that come from without, where is your God, the voices that come from within, that accuse himself, and he sits down, and he has a talk with himself. He says, self, stop looking only to the sad state of your present circumstances. Instead, look back on all God's goodness. Remember, he, he says, I, I remember worshiping. I remember going with a multitude of people to the temple, and it was so good, and where that could be crushing if you said it's never going to happen again. Once he resolves, you know something he's going to bring me there again, he can look forward, and he can say, I'm not going to be in the pit forever. He's got a good solution. In fact, his solution of preaching to himself is so good, he does it three times with exactly the same words. But a good solution is not the same as a quick solution. And I think the psalmist wants us to know this because he goes right from expressions of hope, hope in God, I will again praise him, goes right from that very next verse into expressions of despair. Verse six, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mizar. Those are all far north end of Israel. So he preached hope to himself. He preached hope to his own soul. And yet, first thing he says is, it didn't help much. Depression doesn't give up easily. It's not an immediate cure. But note now, there is maybe just a little bit of fight in the man. He does not merely weep. That was verse 3. I weep day and I weep night. Now he says, one way to fight depression is by remembering God. God. You see it? My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, it didn't, it didn't work just once to say, soul, listen, it's not going to last forever. I'm still downcast, okay? I'm going to remember God. Therefore, I remember you. He remembered that God has promised to hear him when he cries out to him. He remembers that God's glory, this is so important. Do you know that God's glory is tied to your joy in him? If you're always broken, always grumpy, always sad, never joyful, what picture are you giving the world and one another and yourself about God? Some of you know a phrase that John Piper coined. Outside of Scripture, it's been one of the most useful things I've ever heard. He simply said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And I think that's true. And that means... God's commitment to you being satisfied, not just thirsty and broken and longing and depressed, but satisfied, his commitment to that is tied to his commitment to the display of his own glory. And he has no higher commitment. It's really good news. So you pray, I want to glorify you. And I don't just want to glorify you by my longing for you, which is one way. I want to glorify you by my enjoyment of you. You start arguing with God. God, would you do something in me so that I can give you glory? You're going to win that argument. He loves it when people come to him with that argument. The, psalm, the psalmist continues, verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. No one that I've read claims to know exactly what that verse means. What does it mean, deep calls to deep? I have an idea. That's all it is. I'll give it to you, and you can judge it on your own. When I hear a powerful waterfall, one that falls so far that when it hits the ground, it digs a deep hole, and there's so much water coming over that it roars, because that's the picture, the roar of a waterfall. When I find something like that, you know what I sit down, you know what I do? I sit down and worship. I see the power of God, the creativity of God. I see the beauty of God, and it calls to me. I might have sat down in a bad mood. I might have sat down with, with not many good thoughts about God. And I sit down in front of a waterfall like that, or go to the Grand Canyon or take a drive through the Alps, or hike the Appalachian Trail, or do something that brings me face to face with the beauty and the majesty of God, it calls to me. I think that's close to the right reading, in part because a couple weeks ago, Jeff was preaching from Psalm 19.1, and the first verse of that is, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. We're supposed to look We're supposed to see. And when you sit down by a massive waterfall, it's supposed to stir something in you. God is powerful. God is majestic. God is beautiful. Deep, called to deep for the psalmist, I think, and stirred something in him because notice verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Where did that come from? They mock me. I'm away from God's people. I'm dry. I'm thirsty. I'm longing for God. I'm soaking my couch with tears night and day. And now all of a sudden, the Lord commands his steadfast love. I got a song. I got a prayer. I'll tell you where that comes from. Deep call to deep. He was reminded of the beauty and the power and the goodness of God. What what an incredible transformation. In in the midst of all this pain and all this dryness, he suddenly feels loved. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. He feels that because he has a song. He says, at night, his song is with me. Not shouting out yet in the midst of a multitude, Probably a quiet song, sings to himself when he goes to bed. It's got a song. And it's a prayer, a prayer to the God of my life. There's no prayer in stanza one. There's only thirst and tears and memories of happier days. There's no sense of God's presence. There's dryness. But now, steadfast love, a song and a prayer. And suddenly, the God who seemed just so far away, so distant, is said to be the God of my life. I pray that every one of us can say that. Not just when you're sitting here comfortable, happy, worshiping together, but when you're where this man was. He is still the God of your life. He's doing a bit better. But again lest we rush through this and think that there's an easy cure for spiritual depression, something automatic, just do these three steps and everything will be better by Monday, Uh, the author continues with another dose of very painful reality. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? The man's been fighting, and he's been fighting well for hope and for faith and for joy. He knows that God is his rock, and yet he's just up one minute and down the next, up one minute and down the next. He just declared God's steadfast love, and now he says, why have you forgotten me? Once again, his enemies see his struggle and they use that struggle to just stick the knife in a little further where it's going to hurt most. And they say, where is your God? So what's his response to the mocking this time? We know what it was last time. and It helped a little bit. But now he's right back in despair and being mocked. What's left to do? He tried preaching to himself. It had no long-term effect. He preaches to himself again. Sometimes, and you're familiar with the saying, sometimes doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result, is not the sign of insanity. It's the sign of faith. It's a sign of knowing how God works. So he sings the chorus a second time. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Same exact words as before. It helped a little the first time. Is it going to help again? He was high, now he's back low again. He prays it again, he sings it again. What will it do? Well, it helps. I want to continue now. That's the extent of Psalm 42, which I think is just stanzas one and two of the three stanzas song. Stanza 3 is verse 43. So let's look at that. He continues, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. The same people that were there in Psalm 42 are there in Psalm 43. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. It's not giving up. In the despair of stanza one, that he fought by preaching to himself, it gave way to little glimmers of hope in stanza two. And that led to a second round of preaching to himself. And it's now given way to a man who, while he's not out of the valley yet, What's he talking about? He's now talking about being vindicated by God, taking refuge in God, trusting God to give him light and truth and lead him through this. He expresses hope that God will bring him back to Jerusalem, back to church, back to God's people where he can worship together. There's still plenty of ungodly people in his life, tormenting him, mocking him, there's still oppression. But those realities seem to become smaller. Those voices are just a little quieter. They no longer dominate the conversation that's going on in this brother's head. And instead now, against all odds, it seems he expresses a hope and an experience of God that was just utterly absent at the beginning of Psalm 42. Verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre. Oh God, my God. Have you ever noticed that sometimes your situation doesn't change, but your depression is lifting anyway? Why? Because your experience of God has changed. Same problems, same oppressors, same enemies, but a fresher, clearer Truer view of God. The fog is lifting. He's beginning to see things in their proper context. Most tellingly, that first verse of 42, where he just says, I'm just thirsty and I'm dry, has flipped. What's God now? An exceeding joy. He's starting to experience the presence of the Lord. People that are in deep depression don't talk that way. They don't talk about joy. They don't talk about praise. They don't talk about picking up a stringed instrument to sing to God, who is now God, my God. So he's coming out of it. He's not completely free of his troubles, but his hope is real, and his sense of God's presence is growing, and he's not just looking back at wonderful, joyful times of worship. He's looking forward to more of the same. So now, what does he do? He sings the chorus one more time. And I have to wonder if he sings it the same way he did the first two times, because you can sing the same words with radically different tone, radically different inflection, different music, even. You can sing it with despair. In stanza one, he probably did. You can sing it knowing that you've got just a glimmer of hope at the end of stanza two. And you can sing it as just a joyful kind of self-rebuke for letting those crazy thoughts just dominate your mind for so long. And you can sing it. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You can sing it different ways. I don't think he sang it the third time the same way he sang it the first time because God has been bringing him through. The psalmist had good reason to hope in God. He knew God as creator, he knew him as the maker and keeper of the covenant with Abraham and his descendants. He knew that God made the waterfall that was deep and beautiful and that called out to him. He had sung of the goodness of God time and again in his role on the worship team of the day. He had good reasons for hope. We have better reasons. Do you know that? As good as his reasons are for hope, you have better reasons, better grounds to have this kind of confidence in God, even in the midst of depression. I like Tim Keller. I know he's a controversial figure sometimes, but he is a master at taking events that happen in the Old Testament and then saying, let's look at them from the New Testament. So with a nod to him and his inspiration in this, let me close this way. Do you sometimes thirst like the psalmist in verse 1? Someone else felt thirst on your behalf. Jesus said, from the cross as he's dying in our place I thirst he experienced thirst that we might drink our fill from the river of his delights in his house that's Psalm 36 8 he thirsts so you can drink do people sometimes mock the reality of your God as they did with the psalmist while he was on the cross the leaders mocked him saying he trusts in God Let God deliver him now. In other words, where is your God, Jesus? He felt the full weight of that kind of mocking, and he chose to die instead of calling upon his Father for those 12 legions of angels that would have delivered him in an instant. He was buried. He was resurrected. He was taken up in glory so that You and I could know beyond a shadow of a doubt the mockers don't get the last word. God gets the last word. Your Father gets the last word in your life and in every life. Have you ever felt like the psalmist is forgotten by God? Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the most soul Crushing abandonment a person can experience so that our experience could be he will never leave me or forsake me you don't get any of that if Jesus did not thirst and endure mocking and have to cry out my God my God why have you forsaken me Jesus experienced all that the psalmist did and all that you and I experience and so much more so that he can be a true help to those who feel that way now. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted by depression and by despair and not merely by sin. So soul, listen to me. No matter how depressed you feel, no matter how dark the future looks, hope in God. I will again praise him. He is my salvation. He is my God. And whether you have to sing it three times, like the psalmist does, or 30 times, or 300 times, sing it. Pray it. He will answer you. I want to do something I've never done as we close. I want to read another man's prayer. That sounds odd, and I know it sounds odd. I've never met him. His name is Scotty Smith, and he was a pastor in Franklin, Tennessee. He spent about thirty years there in a single church that he founded. He's now retired, and he uh, you can find him on Gospel Coalition, other blogs. Really, a good writer. He wrote a prayer based on this psalm, Psalm 42, and when I read it, I have no what to say other than deep call to deep. I wish I could pray this way, um, but I'm going to read it. And let's let it be our prayer to God for this issue. Here's what he wrote. Bow with me in prayer. Kind hearted Father, my heart goes out today, and my prayers reach up on behalf of those who struggle with various expressions of depression. I have friends who live all along the axis of mild melancholy to the relentless pangs of suicidal depression. Father of mercies, teach us how to love in the dark, disconnected places. Continue to rescue us from naive and inadequate views of depression. It is not as simple of a condition as I used to think. I grieve the ways I used to counsel the depressed, encouraging and exhorting them to just run to Jesus and get over it. The psalmist asked the right question in a season of great duress. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Indeed, Father, there are multiple reasons for a downcast, disturbed soul. Please show us how to care for our friends and ourselves when descending into the different expressions of sadness and hopelessness. Father, for our friends who are depressed for no other reason than living with a graceless, gospelless heart, Keep them restless and disturbed until they rest in the finished work of Jesus. May they despair of their unrighteousness and their self-righteousness until they are driven to the righteousness that only comes from faith in Jesus. Bring the grace and truth of the gospel to bear with great liberating power. Father, for our friends who suffer with depression generated by physiological reasons, Lead them to good physicians and the right kind of medical care. Grant us the grace we need to be patient and understanding of the complexities involved in their illness and care. The risk of abusing meds is always there. This can be a very difficult and long journey. Give us your compassion and strength. And Father, for our friends who suffer from depression fueled by demonic influence, grant us wisdom, and courage, as we enter the warfare for their souls. Satan, our fury-filled foe, is relentless and ruthless. His condemning, blaming, shaming voice is enough to generate deep despair and thoughts of self-destruction. Equip us with the arsenal of the gospel as we wrestle in prayer and walk with our targeted friends. How we long for the day of no more darkness, depression, and despair. Until that day, we put our hope in you, our loving Savior and faithful God. So we pray in Jesus' compassionate and victorious name. Amen.